Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 175, being recorded on Tuesday, May 21st, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, this is one of those rare occurrences, which I think is actually not rare this year, um, that we are in the same city. So I am up in Chicago. You and I just gave an amazing talk to uh, a retail group uh, about innovation. Um, we should turn that into a deep dive sometime. I think uh, we dropped some serious knowledge there. Uh want to thank them for having us up, and then we are able to lay down a podcast since I'm up here. Yeah, I feel like it's super distracting to actually get to look at you while I'm talking to you. Usually it's just the the picture that I have hanging in front of my desk. Yeah, yeah. Your hair is amazing today. I think we referenced in the talk earlier that you had a Brazilian blowout, so it's looking good. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going there, but I'm glad it worked for you. (laughs) Cool. It's also chilly here in Chicago. I was in nice 90-degree weather down in North Carolina and uh, flew up in my shorts. I made that strategic error, and it's like 52 and rainy here in Chicago. Exactly, but I, I would like the record to show that I'm still not ashamed of you uh, because I have brought you to my office um, in your goofy shorts and and uh, jacket. Yeah, the uh, the thing I've learned is when you're a chief commerce retail strategy digital officer, you get swanky office space. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, they just don't know that I'm here. So that's <laughs> like until they discover me, I'm gonna roll with it. <laughs> it's like we work, but in wedding crashers all together. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so lots to talk about this week, Scott. Yeah, we have some trip reports. So, uh, you and I have both been to New York uh, recently and went to the uh, Hudson Yard new setup there, which was pretty cool. Uh, did you get to dry, uh, walk around the structure there called – I call it the structure. I think they're going to rename it. Um, it's the vessel. Did you get to uh, walk around in that? I did, and this is going to be a big problem for me. If the new attraction in all malls is 154 staircase structures, uh, I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm going to have to change my my field because my fitness level is not appropriate for climbing that thing. Yeah, sadly, when we went, the line was like 45 minutes to get into the vessel, so we we passed on the vessel. Um, But I did get to go into the – I don't know what we're supposed to call it. I know they are violently against calling it a mall. I, uh, so we went to the, the mixed use shopping space. <laughs> yeah, I went into the mixed use shopping space. Um, I thought it was good. So they have a beta store there. Um, yeah, we're obviously big fans of beta here on the show. Um, uh, it was first chance for my family to go in there. They really enjoyed the show. Um, and then uh, I went with my younger daughter, and they had this little thing called a snark park. Um, and it was this little combination art installation space and kind of amusement area. Um, and when we went there, they had this really interesting kind of uh, maze. So there's um, – imagine these sheets hanging from the wall in about a 3,000-square-foot area. You navigate through these things and you kind of can find a lot of little interesting art displays inside of there. Um, and then there's a fun mirrored area where we can watch everyone kind of getting lost inside of the maze. So we enjoyed that. And is it – Purely to experience, or is it also one of these places that's set up to take like 
uh, unique Instagram photos and there was some of that. Yeah. So some of the art installations you could kind of like sit in. So imagine a column that's hollowed out with a seat in it and then a mirror, uh, kind of a disco ball mirror on the inside. Um, so yes, there was a lot of, a lot of selfies taken, uh, a lot of Instagram excitement. Yeah. Yeah. So like taking maybe a half step back, um, as with most malls, apologies, uh, these days, it's, it's sort of intended to be a mixed use space. So there's, uh, luxury condos, uh, there's a bunch of retail space, um, there's a bunch of premium food, and then there are these sort of um, experiential spaces. And so the vessel is this free one, which is this really interesting structure with all these staircases outside. Um, there's the one you just re- re- uh, mentioned. And then it's not open yet, but they're going to have um, – it's a very tall tower, and they're going to have, uh, I think, the highest – outdoor deck in the uh in the, in manhattan yeah it's called the edge exactly. um, not Sounds to be spooky. confused with uh one of the members of youtube yeah. uh, <laughs> um but it's cool yeah it's cantilevered out uh and i believe it's like 70 or 80 stories up um so it looks like it's gonna be fun and it has an area um there's some of these in las vegas i don't know if you've been to them um where uh it's got a glass bottom to it so sure. not only are you you know amazingly high in the air but there's effectively nothing underneath you so it seems I like, like I'm a charter member of the ghost bar in las vegas so oh okay good yeah i i've also been there well, how about that uh so um, that, so that's going to be fun alert, that means that place is no longer cool when jason and scott <laughs> when we roll in for table service exactly. we're the only people there yeah <laughs> uh so that's going to be kind of fun to to see what that's like uh, unless you're scared of heights then that will not be fun yeah um, and so, I mean, what was your overall impression? Uh, it, the, this development's a little controversial. Yeah. So my, uh, I always go to my wife on this. She felt like everything there was crazy expensive. So, so there's, as you know, there's an anchor Neiman Marcus. Um, generally my wife likes those stores. Um, and, um, she like, like likes to find things that kind of go on sale and there was like nothing on sale in this entire, um, mixed use environment. So, um, so I think the beta shop was kind of our favorite. Um, another one, uh, there's a direct consumer sock company, uh, called stance and they were there. So that was kind of interesting. I have an um, inkling why you like them. Yeah. Yep. They have star Wars socks. Sadly, they did not have them at the location. Um, you know, as a operator, I just kind of couldn't get my head wrapped around how many socks you would have to sell to pay for the rent. So I don't, it felt like something like 10,000 pairs a day. So I'm not sure, you know, a lot of these things are, are or probably a loss for companies and they're really more of a flagship branding kind of a on the PL versus like a real moneymaker. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it is going to be interesting to watch. Um, the uh, native Manhattanites um, have been a little negative on this base. Uh, you know, they all tend to be tribal and stay in their own neighborhoods and there's some well-established shopping districts either close to where they work or where they habitually shop. And so uh, Hudson Yards is in a new area that doesn't have a lot of residential so it's right next to javits center it's kind of in the on the water on the 33rd 34th and so you, when you talk to a lot of manhattanites they're like who's gonna go down there um <laughs> so far away <laughs> yeah to, to go shopping and i always remind them like the the retail here isn't probably first and foremost for them like it's meant to be another tourist destination um some of the traditional shopping centers for like luxury shopping like Fifth Avenue are actually starting to die and and brands are moving 
away from there because the rent has just gotten so crazy. And so these kinds of places are, are potentially alternatives. So I, I don't um, rule out Hudson Yard being successful because of that. Like all mixed-use properties, what's really going to make it successful or not is how successful they are at the mixed-use part. Like if they sell out all the, the residential there and they, they therefore build a big community of potential customers and the, the food is attractive enough to draw people there for date night and stuff, it, like, it'll probably go well. Um, if those things end up being a facade and the only reason you'd go there is – to shop the beta store or the stance store. Um, there are other beta and stance stores in Manhattan. So like, I don't feel like their store assortment is really differentiated. Like, in fact, it's mostly the assortment you'd see at any other sort of a, or even B mall, um, in the U S at this point. Um, and we'll maybe talk about that in a minute. The one really unique piece of retail there is the Neiman Marcus. Um, and the reason I say that's unique is because, uh, Neiman Marcus is a Texas-based luxury retailer with like 40 stores. Um, they haven't opened a new store in some time, and they haven't been in the new New York market. And so it's kind of interesting. Um, they've been relatively successful in the markets they're in, but opening a, a new luxury department store in New York is very ambitious because there's a lot of very well-established luxury department stores. And so this, like, you know, it's the newest and therefore probably the nicest Neiman Marcus. But it's, uh, you know, very high risk, high reward, whether they'll be able to win over Manhattanites um, with their kind of uh, Dallas vibe, if you will. Yeah, several New Yorkers I know pointed out the um, a bit of hypocrisy about it because uh, I think the the state and city gave a lot of development funds to this group, um, actually more than were proposed for Amazon. So it's kind of funny that this was allowed to continue, but then you know bringing Amazon, which would actually probably have more jobs than a bunch of living and retail space uh, would would have. So you know, very interesting to see the the politics at play there. Yeah, I mean these kind of economic development incentive programs are super common in in retail and in development, and obviously. Uh, well, I do think there's some hypocrisy there. I also think it's somewhat of a self-inflicted wound. Uh, I mean, Amazon dramatically raised the 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 public awareness and therefore like uh, made themselves as a target. So I maybe don't have total empathy for them. Um, but that this does dovetail to the the other thing I did in my New York trip is I went to another mall that's south of Hudson Yard called Brookfield Place. And the reason I went to Brookfield Place is that's that's a downtown that's um, very near the the New World Trade Center, um, and it's a similar mall with a very similar assortment of stores. And actually, I would argue, uh, while the food is is much more uh, new and distinct at Hudson Yard, the retail mix between Brookfield Place and and Hudson Yard is very similar, and therefore not differentiated. Um, but Brookfield Place has a lot of uh, businesses already in it, and they just opened the first Amazon Go store in Manhattan. So for the all the retail press that's based in um, New York, and I want to say Bloomberg might even be based in Brookfield Place, uh, this became news because it was their first chance to experience Amazon Go in their local market. And so I wanted to see if they did anything different than they've done in the other nine Amazon Go stores. Cool. Did they? Was it a similar footprint? Because they've got like, um, so let's say they've got alcohol in some now. There's some big ones and some small ones, um, but they all te- tend to have prepared meals and kind of more of a convenience store type selection. Yeah, I think if you drop most people in the store, 
they wouldn't be able to differentiate it from any of the other ones. It's definitely on the small end of the footprint, um, and it, it does not have alcohol. Um, and the one differentiating characteristic uh, you would you would really struggle to notice. Um, so. Uh, Manhattan is one of several municipalities that have this local ordinance that retail stores must accept cash. And so big, uh, that's a big controversy for Amazon Go stores because they, they were not designed to accept cash. And so uh, when Amazon opened this store in Manhattan, uh, part of the PR around it was, oh, this is the first Go store that would accept cash. So I went there, you know, amongst other things, to see how they – they plan to handle that, um, and the answer is badly. Yeah. Well, it kind of ruins the experience, right? The whole experience is supposed to be totally digital. So it's yeah. Kind of, kind so of again, the whole point is like you use the app to show a barcode to scan your way into the store. You just grab whatever you want, and you walk out, and the cameras automatically charge you for everything, and it's just walkout technology. So the pay-with-cash system, you can't get through the turnstiles. So you have to flag down an associate when you're outside the store and get them to launch their app and cash you in, meaning scan you in as a cash customer. Um, And then when you're done shopping, you have to flag down another employee who's going to wheel out a portable cash register with a cash box (laughs) to accept your cash. Um, And then they're going to have to walk you out of the store. (laughs) And it it just – it um, it's a very – like – Obviously, they put a process in place to comply with the ordinance, um, but if people really wanted to pay with cash, this is an extraordinarily high-friction experience. And, it, it, of course, uh, I, I like to joke with the Amazon Go stores. They invented Just Walk Out, but they broke Just Walk In yeah. because there's always a line in front of the store of people trying to download the app to get in. And now if there's people like trying to flag employees to get cashed in, it's it's an awkward uh, situation. Luckily for them, I don't think any of their customers want to use cash. I think it's just a, an ordinance thing. Yeah. I, th- I bet they're like, oh, here comes another of these podcaster that wants to talk about our terrible cash thing. Exactly. I like <laughs> to pretend that I'm such an irritant that there's a picture of me in the, in the employee room, but there probably isn't. It's possible. Yeah. Cool. Uh, just a quick note. We're coming up on trade show season. I am not going to a lot of trade shows, but Jason is. Um, so Code Recode is coming up June 10th, uh, and that's in New York? That this year. So historically, it's been in Southern California. Right. This is the first year they moved it to uh, the Phoenician in Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, very nice. It's a new it venue. should be nice and hot by then. Uh, the show previously known as Internet Retailer Conference and Exhibition is now called Retail X, uh, and that is June 25th. I don't think either of us is going to that. Are you going? Uh, if I'm in, so that's in, here in Chicago. If I, I uh, if I'm in town, I will attend, but I I, uh, I haven't booked it yet. Cool. Uh, then NRF has a new show called uh, NXT or Next, and that's going to be July 22nd. Uh, E-Tail East uh, is in August 19th. Uh, and then Jason's speaking at Grocery Shop, uh, which is from the Shop Talk folks, and that is September 15th. What are you speaking about? Uh, back in Vegas, I'm uh, moderating a couple of panels, and you've totally busted me because as I sit here right now – just say grocery stuff. I can't. Yeah, it's a, a curbside delivery. Yeah, transformation of a digital grocery. It's going to be super exciting. Don't miss it. Well, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk about some Amazon news. Amazon news. Your margin is their opportunity. 
Uh, it's actually been a quiet couple of weeks out of Amazon. A couple of things we wanted to hit on. Uh, so one thing I thought was interesting is in India, Amazon is testing a travel program. Uh, this is kind of like um, what I would look at, like the Expedia business model, where they're um, instead of just being a, a meta site, um, they're actually it looks like they're taking inventory. So imagine, you know, imagine that goes well. Amazon likes to test these things in a lot of different markets. Imagine that goes well, and in the next couple years, uh, imagine you could book your travel through Amazon. And, you know, uh, what's interesting to me about that is because, you know, so A, you know, imagine it's part of Prime. Um, then B, if they start to see your travel habits, Amazon's so good at all this data um, processing they can do, um, I think it would give them an edge on going out and buying inventory. So the the secret in the travel industry is a lot of times they'll use this data and they'll go buy rooms. Um, Expedia will go take inventory risk. Uh, and then because they can go and say, all right, we think Chicago is going to be busy in June, they go buy a bunch of rooms, they can sell them, and then they can make a bigger profit or give a bigger discount. So you can see Amazon doing some really interesting thing for Prime users, where you could effectively, um, and married with data, you could effectively, you know, part of your Prime benefit would be really good um, hotel room kind of pricing, uh, kind of a thing. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, further expanding the definition of the everything store. Absolutely. And one one thing that's mildly interesting to me about that is while they're pursuing that business model in India, that model in the U.S. has become somewhat controversial because you know who's really uh, threatening the traditional travel portals here is the Google. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, very you you do you Google um, hotel or flight information, and now the instant answer box pops up, and you can actually book your travel through that instant answer box. So a lot of the traffic that would normally flow from Google to Expedia or Travelocity or those sites, Google's now sort of stealing and monetizing and that's like you know obviously the the traditional travel portals are not in love with that yeah um so that's been interesting to watch uh another part of the world amazon acquired a delivery company in the uk called deliveroo and the main reason i wanted to bring that up is because it's really fun to say deliveroo uh, <laughs> but this is another one of those uh, uh businesses that they're not um uh, as big in, in the U.S., Deliveroo is sort of a DoorDash in the U.K. They're a, re- a meal delivery service. And so that that was a interesting acquisition as uh, Amazon continues to bolster their their breadth of offering and their global footprint. Speaking of delivery in Amazon, uh, so uh, we talked about it on the last show. They Amazon, uh, in their Q1 earnings, um, announced that they are going to move Prime from two to one day. Uh, now, a lot of that is being driven by this program called the Delivery Service Providers. And that's where they have these really fancy Mercedes Sprinters out there. Um, they're kind of like this gray um, with the, the orange Amazon smiles. I, I see like 20 a day uh, in my area. Um, I think they – you know, they initially bought 20,000 of those. Uh, and when they announced next day uh, delivery, they talked about an $800 billion investment. I think that's going to be a lot into that program. Uh, and I think they're having enough challenge getting people there. They announced that any Amazon employee that wants to set up their own DSP business, uh, Amazon will, um, they'll set them up, they'll give them guaranteed volumes, and then they'll actually pay their, uh, their previous job, uh, out three or four months. So they're, they're, you know, they're getting very creative on how they get more people to start these kind of 1099 delivery businesses for them. And the way I think of that, Scott, like it's, it's not a 1099 individual employee delivering stuff for Amazon. It's essentially 
Amazon hiring a, a, a franchise business yeah. to do deliveries. And I think their their preferred version of that business has more than one van. Absolutely, yeah. They want they want employees to go and set up, you know, um, a business and hire ten people and manage the whole thing and you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people. Um so so yeah. So this is actually um the first company that did this is FedEx Ground. So, so Ground is effectively uses. If you look at the vans closely, every FedEx van has kind of in the corner operated by you know Jason's Chicago Delivery Company. Um, FedEx Air is completely owned and operated. Um, so, 1099 is this broad category. There's a lot of um, legislation around this out there. The labor market just the labor um, department actually just opined and said. Individuals as 1099s are can still be 1099s. Now we'll, we'll kind of see how long that stays there because it's in the political world. Um, and there's been a lot of FedEx has done a lot of litigation around the way they do the businesses, and that's that's pretty um, you know pretty well litigated. And if there is a business, a true business, um, then it can be kind of a 1099 relationship. Yeah, and uh, this is not so uncommon. Like obviously, a lot of other kinds of businesses. Are are actually a network of franchisees, like a lot of uh, fast food restaurant chains, for example. Mm-hmm. And often, uh, when you when you're in growth mode, one of the ways you, if you're Burger King or McDonald's, that you might grow your franchise footprint is you you'd look into that employee base and go to all those good assistant managers and offer them financing to buy their own franchise. And so, I think of this Amazon program as somewhat along the the same lines. Yeah, where it could bite you is let's say you have, you know, this engineer working on AWS who gets a wild hair and wants to be an entrepreneur and you know now you you know that maybe they're harder to replace. Well, you know, I don't know how many people, I don't know who they're actually offering this to. Um my my guess is it's probably kind of like supervisor and up kind of in the fulfillment center. Um you know like so so they didn't cover that in the press release, but I I bet there's a certain type in that, you know, if you were a senior developer, this probably isn't available to you. <laughs> uh, I would say if you're a conspiracy theorist, um, Amazon is sort of rejiggering their their real estate and they're um, uh, moving a lot of employees around. And one of the things that happens there is you have some churn. Um, and so potentially uh, this is also a way to mitigate mitigate some of that churn, that some of those employees that maybe wouldn't have relocated to the new facility that you're moving their team to – uh, uh, stays in the family with one of these businesses instead. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, sort of r- uh, wrapping up our Amazon delivery news, uh, Amazon, of course, uh, made a big splash in the U.S. They announced that they were primarily going to one-day delivery. And we've we've talked about this in a previous episode of the show because uh, when Amazon on their earnings call announced that they were moving from two-day delivery uh, free with Prime to one-day delivery free with Prime. Um, there was kind of a snarky tweet from Walmart um, saying, that doesn't sound like huge news. Uh, free one-day delivery with no Prime membership would be a much bigger deal. And we all took that to imply that that was something Walmart was working on but wasn't prepared to announce. And so now, of course, they have announced it. Um, and... I would say it's kind of mixed. It was not exactly what I expected. Uh, so they've they've announced that they Walmart has announced that they're going to provide free one day delivery on orders over thirty five dollars, which is their usual shipping threshold, in th- uh, initially in three markets. 
which isn't that big a deal. But they uh, sound like they're they're intending to scale it rapidly. So they they intend to reach seventy five percent of the U.S. population by the end of the year. Um, and so you know they, uh, I, I'm calling this the one day shipping wars, um, as as both these companies are sort of escalating the uh, the shipping promise. Um, as we talked about uh, in the previous episode, Amazon has a lot of infrastructure to leverage to do this, and it's probably kind of a incremental thing for Amazon. It's probably going to take a much bigger investment from Walmart, and arguably Walmart e-commerce already isn't profitable. So this is probably like um, a pretty painful move for Walmart to uh, further erode margins to keep up the service level that, that Amazon has offered. Arguably, Walmart can afford to do that. What's going to be interesting is the rest of the, the the market, right? If Walmart and Amazon are both offering one-day delivery, that's going to set a new expectation level that all the rest of the retailers are going to really struggle to meet. Yeah, I saw an interview with Mark Laurie, and uh, you know the reporter said, you must be doing this from the stores. And they said, no, it's going to be from the warehouses. And um, so it's interesting. So there's like a whole different set of inventory that will be available for that. Um, and then if we kind of play this out, you know, the next kind of domino to fall is Target. And, you know, we've heard Target talk about more than 50% of their stuff is shipped from store. So I wonder if Target could almost get there faster on the sl- a smaller selection of store items by cranking up the ship from store kind of capability. Yeah, I think that's exactly the the trade-off that they each have to make, right? Uh, Amazon's got uh, north of 400 million SKUs that they sell now. Uh Several million of those are available for this two and now one day shipping. Like so, they have millions of SKUs in their one day shipping program. Um, Target uh, on, like primarily sells the assortment that they have in the stores. Now they do have a broader assortment online, and and they recently made news, news because they're adding their own marketplace. But all that ship from store is the store inventory. So the overwhelming majority of Target sales are the sixty thousand SKUs that are in a Target store. Um, side note, those, those popular SKUs are generally the hardest ones to be profitable on. Yeah. Um, and then Walmart has been kind of in between. They have a hundred thousand SKUs in a typical Walmart store. And I assumed that's what they were going to offer one day on, because that would be a, a pretty painless thing to do is ship from store. Yeah. And they actually didn't do that. They're, they're saying that their assortment for one day shipping is going to be about 200,000 SKUs. So that's twice the assortment of a store. They're they're shipping from a fulfillment center. It sounds like at least initially they're shipping from existing fulfillment centers, but they're going to have to dramatically expand those fulfillment centers because traditionally Walmart has spread their inventory around their eight fulfillment centers. And when you order 10 things, you may well get three boxes. Hmm. And so what they're now saying is you're going to get everything from one fulfillment center and it's going to be up to 200,000 items that we can promise one day. And so essentially what Walmart is clearly doing is adding a bunch of capacity to their existing uh, D2C fulfillment centers to offer this new service level. You think that means just bigger or more robots or more I, people? Or? So don't know. They haven't said, but I suspect the answer is going to be automation and the not so much because the automation is more efficient. That's a benefit. But uh, one of the cool things about these automated systems is they stack up higher. And so you can get inventory all the way to the ceiling as opposed to just inventory that a person can reach. Cool. 
Speaking of Walmart, we are entering a peak earnings reporting season for retailers. Um, and so Walmart did report their earnings, and um, it was generally pretty good. Uh, their earnings were slightly above expectations. Their revenue was slightly below expectations. Um, Same-store sales were up 3.4%, which is right about uh, where the analysts expected them to be. And then uh, the big number I always like to watch at Walmart was – uh, their e-commerce sales were, again, up 37% for the quarter. So they've been in that 40% range. Last year, they promised 40% for the year, and they basically hit it. Um, I think they've said that the, for the year that growth will still be big this year, but slightly lower. And so starting off with 37% is probably pretty good for them. Yeah, and Amazon has slowed down. So Amazon's kind of in the low 20s now. Um, and, you know, so Walmart's e-commerce is growing twice the size of Amazon, which will help them catch up. Now, you've pointed out on the show, a lot of that's coming from groceries. So we'll kind of have to see, you know, at, at some point, every store has curbside grocery. Then it becomes a game to see, you know, can you uh, drive more general merchandise and grocery sales through that that e-commerce pipe? Yeah, I think Walmart has basically lapped all of their big acquisitions. Um, and so they're comping against those now, but they still are only halfway deployed with groceries. So they're still comping against uh, stores that had grocery this quarter that didn't have grocery last quarter. Yeah, yeah. And they could always do more acquisitions. That yeah, always absolutely. helps with the inorganic growth. Um, so the setup going into the earnings was interesting because Macy's uh, surprised folks in a positive way. Same store sales grew 0.6%, which, uh, you know, you may say, wow, that doesn't sound great. But, you know, I think Wall Street was looking for flat to down. Um, and then, uh, they, you know, the, the stock reacted positively. Um, I've visited, I, I actually here in Chicago, I visited Macy's and we went to the one in New York. Um, and it's really interesting to see story. So, uh, in Chicago, it was pretty stark. There's They're renovating it, so there's like all these gray sheets hanging around, and then you pop through, and there's this colorful section of the store. Uh, so it almost felt like Story was taking over Macy's and the signage everywhere, and um, even the one in New York, the Story area, like it was just packed with people. So um, interesting to see a lot of the innovative things they're doing at Macy's. Yeah, for sure. Um, the next one really surprised me is Kohl's, and – Kohl's has been sort of a an outlier in these department store stories. They've been the one uh, department store that isn't completely value oriented that like has been generally comping comping pretty favorably. Um, and in particular, their same store sales have comped favorably every quarter for I think the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, they made a lot of news around their partnership with Amazon on letting you return Amazon packages in the store, which they have said drives a lot of incremental traffic to the stores. So they're a little bit of a earnings darling, and they just had their earnings call this morning and surprisingly pretty severely down. So same store sales were down 3.4 percent. Um, I think the the initial reaction on the market is the stock really took a hit. Um, the management team talked about uh, my favorite excuse, they blame the weather, um, which to me is always a, a warning sign. Um, and they, you know, they talked about the risk from tariffs, um, but uh, a, a potential warning sign at Kohl's, a first, first sort of chink we've seen in their armor in a while. Yeah, I also heard, and we'll talk about JCPenney, I heard Kohl's and JCPenney are trying to dial down promotions, uh, and the consumer is not reacting well to that. They're kind of like, I'm not coming to your store unless you're going to give me some kind of a, you know, 
promotion of some kind. Yeah, and so I think Cole's answer in, in this earning call is, so we're going to go back to, <laughs> to promotions. And that's, of course, a, a one-way door that you, you basically can't reverse. Once you educate customers to only shop for the deal, you're, of course, stuck with that for the rest of your life. Yeah, and um, so JCPenney also announced today, um, and uh, it was kind of a uh, worse-than-expected situation. So their same-store sales were down 5.5%, um, revenues down 4.1%. Um, so you, you may ask yourself, why is that different? Well, they're they're closing stores uh, quickly, which, which kind of helps – uh, and then uh, the bad news is while all this is happening, they're they're spending more than expected, so they missed on EPS as well. Um, so so kind of interesting, you know, Macy's tell of tale of two cities there uh, with Macy's and Walmart so far really kind of coming out ahead, uh, and then Kohl's and J.C. Penney um, coming down behind. Uh, also, it was announced today. Uh, you know, we tracked Mallageddon here on the show. Uh, Dress Barn announced they're closing 650 stores. We've had I think we've had more store store closing closures announced already this year than all of last year. So so this kind of, you know, Mulligan is worsening. It kind of went was flat from 17 to 18. Here in 19 feels like it's definitely kind of the snowball is gaining momentum. Um, so I think there's what like 5,000 stores that have been announced and that's kind of like what we did last year. Ballpark. Yeah, potentially even a little more now. Yeah. Yeah, so that's um, you know, that's uh, you know, I kind of view it as good news. I think we need to kind of clear out this this dead underbrush uh, and then build the new retail experiences. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, another thing we want to spend time on today, uh, we kind of touched on it. Well, the whole episode with Web um, uh, episode one seventy four was about uh, direct to consumer digital native vertical brands, um, but really there's been a lot of news there. So we uh, you know so so Harry's was acquired for one point six billion. Um, one of the interesting things about that acquisition is uh, and we've we've seen this. So so I kind of call this uh, you know analog company buys digital DNA, uh, and then what what do they do with that digital DNA? Um, so you know we some of the early ones were PetSmart bought Chewy, Walmart bought Jet, and then they took the leadership of Jet and put them in charge of a lot of things, mostly e-commerce. Um, and then we saw it with um, Dollar Shave Club. Uh, you know so I think they uh, the founder of Dollar Shave Club is now running a pretty big piece of the car and company there. Um, so what was interesting about this announcement is the Harry's team is going to be running the whole U.S. operations of uh, the acquiring company, which is Schick's essentially. Uh, what's that? Edge, Edgewell? Edgewell, yeah. Um, That's kind of a pun for the shaving industry. Got it. Edgewell. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so, so you know, this this is, peop- you know, and of course, $1.6 is nothing to sneeze at. So uh, it's really heating up in this space. Um you know, uh, also a way raised capital. Yeah, uh, a way raised another $100 million. I think we talked uh, last year, mid-year, they raised about $50 million. Um, but what uh, caught people's attention was they raised it at a $1.4 billion valuation. Um, so I think it was uh, Wellington Capital Management led this particular round. Um, but one of the things they said they're going to do with this cash is open 50 new stores in a bunch of new markets and potentially introduce some new products. Yeah, and um, you know, one of the things in the world of uh, venture capital that we look at is this whole unicorn club. Uh, so once a company gets up to a billion dollar valuation, it's called a unicorn. There's not that many of them. That's why they call them unicorns. Um, so now we've got you know, between six and eight, depending on how you're counting companies in that club. So uh, just to go quickly through it, uh, Warby has a 1.75 billion valuation, has raised about 300 million. Uh, Allbirds is at 1.4, has raised 77 million. Uh, Way uh, at 1.4. 
four billion and has raised a total of one fifty six. Harry's, which was acquired, uh, their previous valuation was one point four, and they raised two hundred fifty million. Uh, Glossier uh, at one point two billion valuation, one hundred eighty seven million raised. Casper, um, one point one billion uh, valuation at three hundred forty million raised. Dollar Shave Club, uh, one billion at one hundred sixty three million. Uh, and then finally, Hims in kind of the uh, direct to consumer pharmaceutical space, a uh, billion dollar valuation on about two hundred million dollar raised. So, you know, those are interesting numbers. Uh, you can kind of look at the multiples there. Uh, you made a point that was interesting uh, when we were kind of setting up the show. You know, gosh, if you get such a big valuation, why would away not raise more capital? Um, and I, I think, you know, a couple things there. Sometimes these – sometimes entrepreneurs are choosing to get in this billion club um, and then the capital you raise has a lot of negative um, aspects to it. It's effectively almost like a loan. So, so the people, you know, the investors at that scale, they'll say, "All right, I'll give you this valuation, but I've got all these protections." Uh, there's like several the ratchets in the yeah. There's there's um they can double dip on participation. So there's like there's all these things that you can bake in there to to really kind of take their risk to zero. Um, so that could be part of it. Is there you know you don't want to pull down a lot of that kind of capital. Um, another thing that could be in there uh, is, uh, you know, also you could have things that commit to you going public. So some of this is called mezzanine capital has kind of a trigger in there that says in three years, if you don't come, go public or have an exit, this thing kind of like explodes on you uh, or it turns into debt and you have to start paying it back. Um, so the other one, um, you know, that, that I'm seeing is if we pick on away, uh, I'm a big fan of the brand there. Uh, you know, I think they're actually profitable. So, when they're going in and raising this capital, it's usually for a very specific purpose that says, all right, we're profitable right now, but we want to own, we want to open 40 stores and that's going to take 30 million to open those stores. So then we're going to go ahead and kind of put a little cushion on that and, and draw down a hundred. Um, so, you know, so that, that could be another reason why there's not a lot of capital being pulled down. Uh, that, ma- that makes total sense. Yeah. Another thing um, I wanted to talk about uh, that, that I'm watching really closely is the IPO window is open. So we've had, uh, you know, we, you could argue if it's successful or not, um, but we've had IPOs from Lyft and Uber. Um, you know, someone else in our space that has filed to go public is Chewy. Um, so when you file to go public, the document you file with the SEC is called the S1 document. Uh, it is probably the most dry reading everywhere. Uh, it's kind of a poop sandwich. I like to talk about it. So, so what, you know, the, um, because of the way the laws are set up, you almost have to discourage people from investing in your company, um, uh, having gone through this process before. So what you do is the the bread. You have to kind of like the, the SEC is in three sections. Um, the first part is uh, you know all these warnings, you know risk factors, uh, and it's kind of funny that the the unless it's the financial press, most of the press I've noticed in retail they kind of focus on those things and they're like, oh my god, they could be exposed to all this competition, and um, but you, you purposely have to make that negative so you avoid lawsuits from someone saying, you, you know, Chewy didn't tell me PetSmart was a, or Petco was a competitor, blah, blah, blah. Then the delicious middle part is called the management discussion. Um, and then you have a bunch at the end. So I uh, encourage listeners to kind of open up the Chewy S1, go right to the management discussion. Um, and then uh, there's some really interesting things there I wanted to share. Uh, answer a, a question for me about the risk part. Uh, it, you read those sections and it's super Armageddon-ish. 
Um, and I sort of imagine that there, somewhere there's this really funny legal boilerplate of all the bad things that could happen to a business. And so you, I, I suspect they're not inventing this list from scratch every time. Yeah, what you do is you look at your comps. So you go out there and you look at all the other risk factors. Um, every public company updates them annually, typically, um, when they do. So you have your Qs and then your K. Um, when they do their K, they will update their risk factors. So I'm sure, I'm sure you know, what the lawyers did is they went out and they looked at all the public retailers and they kind of whittled it down to, you know, the most salient ones for, for yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm talking like the population could catch SARS and not go outside and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know how lawyers are. They want you to, to kind of, you know, put everything in there. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, uh, nothing ever comes out of the risk section. I can de- definitely tell you that it's <laughs> easy to add stuff. Nothing ever comes out. So uh, just some highlights there um, and a, uh, just a refresher. So, so Chewy sells uh, obviously pet uh, in the pet category. Um, they were acquired by PetSmart in Q2 of 2017. So this is actually kind of a spin out. Think of it that way. Um, and they were founded back in 2011 uh, in the second quarter. Um, so what was impressive to me uh, was the scale. So, so Chewy is now a 3.5 billion annual revenue company. Um, and that was their 2018 revenue uh, compared to 2.1 billion in 2017. So that's a 67% year over year growth rate, uh, which is pretty impressive. Um, now the losses were pretty sizable. So uh, if you look at this thing called adjusted EBITDA, um, they lost 268 million on, that um, three and a half billion, um, so that that equates to kind of a minus six point five percent margin. So snarky folks would say, sure, anyone could build a business that's growing that fast if it's losing money. But the way to think about this is. Um, you know, this business is trying to get into a very high orbit. And when you try to get in orbit, you have to burn some, some fuel to get there. So it's essentially what they're doing. And if I think if you looked at other companies, uh, you know, like a Zappos or, uh, you know, um, you know, any of these other kind of companies that have gotten to the scale, I, I think they've actually done it in a pretty efficient way. Um, when you peel the onion on why that is, uh, oh, uh, another aspect I will also point out is, um, Adjusted EBITDA, as an entrepreneur, uh, we tend not to look at that because you don't have a lot of control over it. There's all these counting rules you can't control, right? So, uh, And it, it, a lot of the stuff that comes out, you run your business, you think you're doing a great job, and then your adjusted EBITDA got worse in there. Um, so a lot of it's out of your control. So what most companies do is they look at free cash flow, which is as an operator what you have more control over. Um, you know, I can't, I can't control what you're going to do to my revenue when it runs through an accounting rule, but I can control – you know, selling more and spending less. Um, so their, their actually free cash flow was negative 57 million. So I would argue at a 3.5 billion top line, you're effectively cash flow break even. Um, so that, that's a good indicator that, that, you know, this is a really well run business and those lines that I would imagine, um, unless they accelerate further at that same growth rate, they would be free cash flow positive next year. Um, so why is that? What, what's kind of their secret? Well, they um, one of the things I love about this management discussion is you get kind of inside the head of the operators. And they spend a lot of time in there talk, talking about subscriptions. And their version of that is auto ship. So 65.7% of their revenue is on auto ship, which is amazing. Uh, you may know better than I do what the typical industry average is. But I think most retailers, they have a subscribe function. And it's probably like in the 10 to 20% range. Um, but, you know, of course, obviously not Stitch Fix or something like that where it's the whole model. Uh, but I think it's really impressive for a general merchandise kind of retailer in the category to have so much on auto ship. Um, they have 10,585 active customers. Um, another thing um, we'll try to put in the show notes is uh, – 
a lot of these S1s do a really interesting job looking at cohort analysis. So again, as an operator, I like to look at this because I like to kind of think about how I think about my business and compare it to how they think about their business. Uber and Lyft had really interesting examples of this. Um, one thing they, they show is uh, in their cohort analysis is they've been able to uh, take the average sales per customer from 2016 at about $297 to today at $334. So what's nice about that is uh, in addition to acquiring new customers in there, they've kind of increased the sales from existing customers more than 20%, um, which is pretty impressive. A lot of times that goes down over time. So they've done a really good job of um, you know, in, in, you know, building loyalty um, from a wallet standpoint, uh, and part of it probably is related to this auto ship program. Yeah, uh, to me, it's it, the the interesting thing here is they they were acquired a couple years ago um, by a brick and mortar retailer, and now that retailer is spinning them off again as a a separate public company. And it, it seems obvious um, they're really an outlier in terms of how well they're performing as a pure play e commerce site in many ways, like the. Profitable or not, very few pure play companies have gone to that two to three billion dollars in revenue, um, and almost all pure play retailers struggle with the repeat purchases. And so, both to have so many repeat purchases and such a valuable spend per customer, and have so much of that locked in via auto replenishment, like is terrific. Um, comma because they're still not making a lot of money. Uh, I feel like they're uh, they're not getting a lot of credit for all those good things. So I'm assuming they're going public because they feel like the the stock market will better reward them for their scale, even if they haven't achieved profitability. Yeah, it could be a value unlock play. Um, it could also be, you know, I don't think they integrated the websites, did they? So, so you know, it'd be really weird um, if I'm running PetSmart.com. I'm probably I'm going to get go out on a limb and guess I'm getting my butt kicked by Chewy. I, I, I can't imagine that's growing 67 percent and at 3.5 billion dollars. So so there may you know it may have seemed like a good idea and then they didn't integrate it and you know it, it may actually be good kind of move it to an arm's length relationship and spend it out um, kind of a thing that could be part of it as well. Yeah yeah. Um, so that's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, we're coming up on time, but there were a couple interesting grocery tidbits I wanted to at least briefly acknowledge. Uh, there was an interesting partnership that was announced this week uh, between Lidl and Boxed. And as a reminder for our listeners, Lidl is a highly successful German grocer that's really focused on uh, low, high quality at, with low cost of goods. And uh, they... They famously tried to enter the U.S. market a couple of years ago, and uh, your your hometown is one of their initial markets, mm-hmm. um, and they weren't super successful. So they kind of slowed down, uh, retooled, and now they're getting ready for a second big push in the U.S. Um, Lidl and a very similar company to them, all the – historically, they've really focused on no frills, uh, bare bones, price – um, and so they've therefore completely ignored digital. So one of the interesting things to me is as Lidl relaunches in the U.S., they've done this interesting partnership with Boxed. And they're they're essentially renting uh, the fulfillment um, hardware and software that Boxed built for their own business uh, to do – uh, to use for grocery fulfillment as part of a digital offering. So I'm excited to see what sort of um, digital experience Lidl is going to offer when they, they relaunch here in the U.S. and it's going to be fueled by Boxed. 
Yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, I think it's smart on the box side to have differentiated revenue so they can sell direct to consumers and then also be a you know a technology provider into to grocery. Yeah, I was disappointed digital didn't play any part in their initial launch. So I'm I'm uh, pleased to see that they've seen the error in their ways there. Um, Kroger announced uh, a new investment arm to invest in these. Uh, uh, direct-to-consumer CPG brands that they're launching. Um, and so we've talked before, um, maybe the most successful uh, venue for launching new brands is is inside of a retail store. And so this seems like Kroger's way of getting unlocking some extra value for helping some of these brands become successful. Um, and then uh, uh, a funny one I saw is uh, Bed Bath & Beyond just launched a new commercial, um, which is... Uh, intended to be humorous, uh, it's sort of a commercial um, where they're explaining brick-and-mortar shopping to a millennial couple. Yeah, so the millennial couple is kind of like sitting in bed online shopping, and then they're like trying to encourage them to come to a store. So so I, I thought it was quite interesting. And to me, it's some, like, like some kind of sign of the apocalypse and realizing that it, it is nigh and upon us. Yeah, I feel, I feel like there's some inflection point. We used to have the funny commercials where these well-established brick-and-mortar brands were trying to convince people to buy online. So, you you know, there was the I shipped my pants uh, campaigns and things like that in, the, in the, the fun early days of e-commerce. And now the fact that we're having to do funny commercials to remind people you can still go to a store and buy something uh, definitely, definitely says something about where we are. And that's probably why you're all listening to the show, and therefore it's not going to surprise you that it's happened again. We've run out of our allotted time, um, so if there's something you had a question about or want to continue the dialogue, uh, we'd encourage you to hit us up on Twitter or jump on our Facebook page. And as always, if you got value out of this episode, we sure would appreciate it if you'd take 30 seconds, jump over to iTunes, and give us that five-star review we desperately crave. Thanks, everyone. We appreciate your five-star reviews, and we will be back next week. And until then, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 